Good morning. Good morning. And I'll just tell you, I was in Chicago last week doing a Healing the Mind seminar in uh, Downers Grove, and uh, they had probably 150, 175 non-church people uh, in attendance there. And um, we got some feedback this week from the people up there that, uh, that they felt that the presentation of God that uh, comes through in the program was the most sensible, reasonable, uh, a loving picture of God they've, they've ever heard, and they were just really thrilled about the uh, the concept of God that, that we appreciate and love in this class. So, Anyway, let's begin with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for another opportunity to come and study today. We ask that your Spirit will be with us. Open our minds that we can discern the right from the wrong, the healthy from the unhealthy, that we can see you more clearly, and that we can become more like you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson number four in our quarterly, The Wonder of Jesus. And the title for this week's lesson is The Wisdom of His Teaching. And before we get started, I got an email this week from a listener to our class in London. And I wanted to share with you the email from London, England. It says, Dear Dr. Jennings, Russell, and the rest of the Come and Reason class, I would like to thank you all from the bottom of my heart for making me see Jesus as he really is, and not through my human, sinful, spiteful eyes. I became a Seventh-day Adventist about ten years ago. I was hurting from the loss of my father when I was three years old and always felt that something was missing. At the same time, I was zealous. Shortly after joining the church, I joined a Bible class that taught judgment and damnation. I began seeing God as severe and exacting. I never knew that God was so loving and so kind that he would die to reconcile us with the Father, who would go to the utmost to save me and fellow man. Little wonder I was miserable and decided to leave the church as the standards were too high. God, in his love and tender mercy, led me to your Sabbath school class and, by God's grace, will continue to grow. What I like about myself now is the things that used to jump on my last nerve no longer do. I wanted to affirm your class and continue to wish God's continued guidance, blessings, grace, and love on you all. Christian Love and Fellowship, a sister in England. So I wanted to share that with you guys. Somebody read for us the memory text, the memory text for us for this week. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as a teacher of the law. He taught as one who had authority, not as a teacher of the law. What do you think was it that gave Christ teaching authority? Was it the sternness and, and loudness of his voice? The louder he shouted, the more authority he had. You know, some preachers use that style, don't they? When they want authority, they raise the voice and shout louder. Is that, is, quote from other scribes and Pharisees? Pardon? He didn't quote from the other scribes and Pharisees. Okay, he didn't quote from the other scribes and Pharisees. Yes. Well, we've all encountered teachers and instructors who you just have an, an inner sense that they, they are so familiar with the topic that they're speaking on that they, they just convey themselves as an authority on that subject. They may have even written the textbook that... Uh, that uh, oh, Christ wrote a textbook, uh, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's good. I like that. Pardon? A good team, a teacher makes it seem understandable. I really like that. And that was that's exactly the point, I think, what made it authoritative. Didn't he explain it in ways that people could actually go, oh, well, that makes sense. Oh, I can, you know what? That, I, I, I've seen that at work. Well, that's why that happens. Okay, I get it now. And, and when, when people connect the dots and make things simple, doesn't that actually come across as persuasive? In other words, the truth. And the more truth that is communicated in ways that we can comprehend is powerful, it's authoritative, it's persuasive. And Christ had this obvious ability to do that. But what do you think um, the teaching of the, the teachers of the law, what was their teaching about? In other words, how do you suppose the teachers of the law taught? Secretively. Legalistically. Because, because it says it, it, was, it was contrasting the way Jesus taught from the way the teachers of the law taught. And what do you think the teachers of the law were teaching? Jesus said if you, to, to them, you search the world all over to find a convert. And when you do, you make him twice the son of hell as he was before. Mm-hmm. Late, just late. impossible to do. I mean, think about that. They laid so many rules and regulations on them, they couldn't possibly keep them. It was an impossibility. What kind of a God do you think the teachers of the law were teaching about? Harsh and kind. Unkind. that they believed in. 
So when they converted someone to their view of God, what kind of God were people accepting? One they had to be afraid of. Would he be one that would get down on his knees and wash his enemy's feet? Is that the kind of God they would convert somebody to? Or was it a kind of God who was going to come and throw off the Roman yoke? A God who was going to punish the wicked? A God who was going to make the, the enemies of Israel suffer? A God who was going to use sword power and might and authority? A God who was going to inflict upon his enemies suffering and punishment? Is this the kind of God they, they were converting people to? Yeah? We, we in agreement? Do you notice that if you convert to that kind of a God, you're twice the son of hell as you were before? Isn't that Satan's way? Well, that, that, that's exactly right. This is Satan's caricature of God. This is Satan's misrepresentation of God. This is what Satan teaches that the kind of being God is. And so when we convert people to a God like that, we're actually darkening their mind. We're actually, we're actually submersing them deeper and deeper into the lies rather than bringing them out of the darkness into the truth. Christ said, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. How about a God who required blood to flow? Blood to flow in order for him to be appeased. Did, did the Pharisees believe in that kind of a God? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, they sure did. I mean, just go down the line. How about, how about a God who would be tender and compassionate and willing to heal people any day of the week? Did they believe in a God like that? No. No, no they believed in a God who would put sickness on you. A God, if, if you weren't good, he'd, he'd make you a leper. Think about the, the, the contrast. And so I think that while the rules and regulations were a big burden to them, ultimately all those rules, regulations, and things had the impact of making people believe in a God who was ugly, who was like Satan in character. Isn't that the, the worst thing that you can do? Hmm. How do such teachings about God get into our head? By the way, do we struggle with things like that today? Yes. How do such teachings like that get into our head? Listening to men. Children's Sabbath school. <laughs> well, well said. Oh, well said. See, a few weeks ago, actually, I put in my notes uh, from well-meaning parents, well-meaning teachers, and well-meaning preachers who themselves have believed these distortions. And last time we met together, which was about a month ago now, uh, I, uh, I said in class that children's story. I remember children's story in church would say things like this. And, and there were some people in class who disagreed. Said, well, I've never heard that in children's story. So I... Interestingly enough, after that last class, before today, I was reading a book by someone called Eric B. Hare. Has anyone heard of Eric B. Hare? He's the consummate children's storyteller of the Adventist Church, isn't he? I'm going to read you a story um, out of his book, Curse Proof, page 51 and 52. The white Tara stood up in the middle of the brass band with the crowd of happy villagers all around. Of course, you know I was the white Tara. I told them a simple little story to illustrate God's love. Once, when I was a very little boy, a dog bit me. And ever after that, I didn't like dogs and never had one in my home. But one day, my little boy brought home a little black dog. At first, I said he couldn't keep it and that we would look for a home for it and give it away. But when I saw how much my little boy loved that dog, how he shared his dinner with it and his milk with it and sometimes took it to bed with him, and I said, All right, then. Although I don't like dogs, I'll let you keep him because you love him so much. And we wouldn't give that dog away, and we wouldn't sell that dog for any price. That's the way it is with God and us. We were sinners and had no right to a home in heaven. But Jesus, the Son of God, loves us and came to earth and shared our food and uh, with us and our homes with us. And he loved us so much that God said, All right, I'll give you a home in heaven to every man and woman and child who will show that they love and obey you. Ah, 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 the village folks chorused. That's the way it is. That's the way it is. And and that's why all the band boys are Christians. Amen. (laughs) What do you think about that story? What is the point, the take-home point of that story? Pardon? God didn't love us and he wouldn't have taken us back if it wasn't for Christ's love. I mean, it. Uh, how would you tell that story to people that have no knowledge of God? Yeah, I wouldn't have told that story. <laughs> I wouldn't have told that story at all. It's like, oh, I don't like dogs, but because my son does, okay, for your sake, I'll let you come. And that's how God, oh, for the son's sake, God, God doesn't really want us in heaven, you see. God doesn't like us because we're nasty little black dogs, and we're sinners. And, and, and you know, he wouldn't want us there, but, but the son came and shared our food and our bed, and, and he's come to love us. And so because he, he loves his son, he'll let us in heaven. 
What kind of a picture of God does that paint? Where does it get into our heads? From little, from childhood, right on up, it's just right on in. I remember I told this story last time when I was a kid. I remember going up front for children's story, and they had the uh, the person uh, in the white robe with a little golden halo, with a with a golden clipboard and a golden pen, representing an angel writing down every sin that us children were committing, so that one day we would have to face it in the judgment. Yeah, and and I walked away feeling frightened. I walked away from children's story scared. Does God want us to be afraid of Him? No. No, this gets in our head from, from childhood on up. Do we even say that we're genetically predisposed to believe this? Or are we more genetically predisposed just to serve ourselves? And, and that's the infection that needs to be cured. I mean, is there a genetic, some something in our heredity that... David says in Psalms 51 that we are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Talking a biological process. First John uh, says that there are three main avenues that our biological predisposition hits us. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. We are born into the world um, infected with a fearful, self-centered condition. We, we are fearful. Uh, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. Perfect love, God's healing solution, casts out all Fear. And so this fearfulness tends to lead us to see things in these ways that are threatening to self. So I think the fearful aspect is a biological predisposition. Um, but then how that gets, how certain constructs get put into our head, that isn't, we aren't born with beliefs about God. That's uploaded later, but it comes through the filter of our self preoccupation and fearfulness. And what gives me hope is knowing that Jesus also had her, um, heredity tendencies passed on through Mary. Yes, and, and isn't that awesome because he took that and cured it. I mean, this is the salvation message. Jesus took our sick condition and cured it, perfectly cured it. And he now is the remedy that will cure you and me. It's an cr- incredible thing. Tim, could, yes. could I just interject here? Uh, there, there are two opposite extremes in our relationship to God. One is, uh, we might say, to God as a friend. Hi, God. Come in and sit down and... and be chewing on gum or just kind of irreverent, not respectful, not appreciative. There's the other side where God is uh, towering above and vengeful and we better mind our P's and Q's, otherwise it's curtains. Uh, Somewhere in the middle there, I think God wants us to relate to Him. We do need to stand in awe and worship Him, and yet God has taken the initiative and come toward us and lived with us, tabernacled with us through Jesus, and he wants to be his friends. He doesn't call us servants, but rather friends or children. So, so the question then remains, then why does God want us to worship him? Exactly. Do you see? He wants us to worship his power. Because, because oftentimes it's put forward, God wants us to worship him. Be, and it's said, well, he's the a creator, he's the almighty, he's the powerful one, and he has the right to command our worship. But while all those things are true, that isn't why he wants our worship. Why does he want our worship? Yeah. If we focus on him, we don't focus on ourselves. And then that results in what? Become like him. There you go. By beholding, we become changed. There is nothing in this universe we can worship and actually grow to the highest pinnacles of development that God created for us. It's for our good, for our health, for our welfare, for our development, for our healing, for our transformation. God wants us to worship him because only in worshiping him do we continue to heal, evolve, grow, advance. That's why he wants us to worship him. And, and so when we come at it from the... So I'm, I'm with you. We need to worship him. But we need to understand the reasons why and why it won't work to worship God out of authority, power, because he said so, because of fear of his of punishment. All those types of worship actually cause our, our hearts and minds to close and we actually don't grow, don't heal in the way God wants us to, to do it. The thing we can give God that he doesn't have is, is our allegiance, our worship, our respect and appreciation for him. And that comes from a grateful heart freely given, and that's, I guess, the point. Let's go to Sunday's lesson. Sunday's lesson is about the Sermon on the Mount. Famous, famous sermon. And at the bottom of the lesson, it gives us several points that they'd like us to focus on from the Sermon on the Mount. Particularly, I want to focus on number six and seven. Six is the issue of retaliation, and seven is love for your enemies. Now, the question of the class... Five. Oh, five and six. Excuse me. Five and six. I have to correct my notes. Five and six. There we go. All right. So, what did uh, Christ teach about retaliation and love for enemies? What was Christ teaching about that? Vengeance is his. 
Love your enemies. Love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Be good to those who spitefully use you. Is that is that all right? So did Christ not only teach it, did he demonstrate that kind of love while he was here to his enemies? Absolutely. When, when Judas betrayed him, how did Christ treat him? When they were spitting on him, cru- crucifying him, cursing him, his enemies, how did Christ treat him? Forgave them. Forgave them. So Christ not only taught it, he lived it, he demonstrated it. In fact, he was more loving and forgiving to, to those who attacked him than, than his own followers. What's... Uh, and did Christ say that if you've seen him, you've seen the Father? Do we believe that what you see in Christ is truly a reflection of the character of God? That the Father was speaking through Christ? That the God, God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself? Then what about the idea that Christ and the Father must punish sin and unrepentant sinners, their enemies? Will God inflict punishment upon sinners? This was uh, actually um, preached here two weeks ago. That God uh, is not only loving, he is also just. And that he will, one day, use his power to inflict punishment upon the wicked. How does that sit with this teaching about how Christ treated his enemies? Opposite. Yes, there's several hands. Yes. And punishment can also come as a natural consequence. Yes, and, and we need to explore the difference. Because what was suggested here a couple of weeks ago was not a punishment of natural consequence, but that God, in order to be just, must use his power to inflict punishment. Upon people, yes. If you love your enemies, you heap coals of burning fire on their head. And ha- but but the context of Paul there in Romans, he says we do something specifically, and that specific act heaps burning coals on their head. What was it Paul said we do? We treat them with kindness. We treat them with love. We treat them with graciousness, and that heaps burning coals on their heads. It causes them to suffer. Yes, yes, interesting, yes. I think it's also important to distinguish between punishment and discipline. Discipline comes from the Greek word disciple, which means to reason with the mind, whereas punishment means to inflict pain upon the body. or To make suffer, be punitive. Yes, exactly, big difference. And so we're not talking about discipline, we're not talking about uh, an intervention to, to steer someone back to a corrective path, to heal, to redeem, to restore. We're not talking about discipline. We're talking about the infliction of punishment because God hates sin and must punish sin in order to be just. This is the idea often put forward. I thought it might be helpful for us to look at some inspiration. But before we look at inspiration, to see what the inspiration says about this, some evidences from the scriptures, I want to ask, the, what is the problem with the idea? If you believe the idea that God has to inflict external penalties upon sin and sinners, if you believe that, what is the problem with that belief? It blurs our vision of what God Okay. So what does it say about the whole issue of sin and sinners? If the problem is that God inflicts punishment upon the wicked, then it basically says there's nothing wrong with sin other than it offends the one in charge. And if the one in charge could just get a little self-control... Just kind of restrain himself, hold his anger and wrath in check, and not lash out against us. Well, we could live for all eternity in our sin, because you see, there's really nothing wrong with sin. There's something wrong, wrong with the one in charge, who has all the power. This is Satan's allegation all along. It fails to understand the nature of sin itself, that sin actually damages, that sin destroys. And because it fails to understand the reality of God's law, because it fails to understand the nature of sin, it also fails to understand the reality of God's law and his character. That the law of God is the law of... Love. And is that law a, a created and imposed law, or is that a natural law that emanates from God himself? Natural. Yeah, so when you violate natural law, do you have to impose penalties, or does natural law have natural consequences? Natural consequences. Yes, and I want to just uh, remind everybody about my blog. Uh, on our website, my blog that I put up last night goes into great detail on all these issues and gives examples about that. But the idea that God must inflict punishment misrepresents God as someone who punishes and thus undermines trust, holds minds captive to Satan's misrepresentations, and prevents people from actually experiencing the healing that God would have. Wendell. Not only can law be looked at as a natural, but also an internal versus an external thing. Did God set up these laws? What is the law an expression of who he is? That's exactly right. Emanating from his own character. That's right. So if the law is something that has to be obeyed, then God has to obey it as if it were something separate from himself that he's obligated to maintain. Whereas if it's an expression of who he is and how things are naturally, but it's an internal, consistent part of him. Exactly. Exactly. 
So let's look at some evidences from Scripture first. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And then James 1.15, sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Now, I want to point out what kind of evidence this is. This is declarative evidence. Okay? We believe in the confidence of Scripture, so we read it, we say, okay, that's good. But these texts are descriptor texts, not direct evidences themselves. Um, aside from the fact we believe the Bible is trustworthy, we accept them at their face value, but these texts don't actually demonstrate the process in action. They just declare the process is occurring. For instance, if I say, ice left in the sun on a 100-degree day will melt. That's a declarative statement. It's a descriptive statement. But it's not the same thing as actually putting ice in the sun on a 100-degree day and watching it melt. Those are two different things, aren't they? And so people who have never actually seen ice in their whole life, and I make that declarative statement to them, well, they would have to have some confidence in me to believe that thing might actually happen. Whereas if they've seen it themselves, then their confidence is in the evidence of what transpires. And the reason I point this out is because one of the confusions that happens when people study the Bible is they'll take declarative statements and they never stop to look at what it actually means, how it's actually demonstrated to occur. And I want us to look past the declarative statements to the demonstration itself so we can actually see in action what this destruction and this anger and wrath of God is all about. And so God gives us evidences to help us understand. A couple more declaratives, and then we'll look at the evidence. Here's Hosea chapter 4, verse 1, 6 and, se- and 6 and 7. It says, There is no faithfulness, no kindness, no knowledge of God in your land. My people are being destroyed because they don't know me. It is all your fault, you priests, for you yourselves refuse to know me. They have exchanged the glory of God for the disgrace of idols. So God here is describing another declarative, but he's telling us they're being destroyed for a lack of knowledge of God, and he's telling us that the religious leaders are the ones leading them into the darkness. Another declarative, and then we'll go to some evidence. This is Isaiah 53, 1 through 5. He says, he was talking about Christ. Christ was, uh, or the child to come. He was hated and rejected. His life was filled with sorrow and terrible suffering. No one wanted to look at him. We despised him and said, he is a nobody. He suffered and endured great pain for us, but we thought his suffering was punishment from God. He was wounded and crushed because of our sins. By taking our punishment, he made us completely well. Notice, though, the prophecy of Isaiah that what Christ would come to do would be misunderstood, and we would think that God was punishing his son. That's how we would interpret it. Has Christianity taught God punished his son. Yes. yes, and it's a lie, it's a distortion, it's a misrepresentation that God foreknew, and he prophesied we would do it. And let's go to some actual evidence of what this means. This is Deuteronomy 32, 22 and 23, and then 29 and 30. This is God speaking. My anger will flame up like fire and burn everything on earth. It will reach to the world below and consume the roots of the mountain. I will bring on them endless disasters and use all my arrows against them. So here we have a declarative statement. God is going to do something. And and God has said these words. But then let's go and see what actually happened. Now we're going to look at the evidence of what transpired. And this is the next verses, just a few down. It says, they fail to see why they were defeated. They can't understand what happened. Why a thousand were defeated by one and ten thousand by two? The Lord their God had abandoned them. Their mighty God had given them up. Wait a minute. So the anger of the Lord, when he gets angry, when he gets upset, when he's wrathful, he, he just withdraws? He lets go? He abandons? Hmm. Let's look at some more. Psalm 75, 58 through 61. They angered him, speaking of God, with their heathen places of worship. And with their idols, they made him furious. God was angry when he saw it. So he rejected his people completely. He abandoned his tent in Shiloh, the home where he had lived among us. He allowed our enemies to capture the covenant box, the symbol of his power and glory. So when God gets angry and wrathful, what does he do? He steps back. He lets go. He abandons people to have their way. Uh, This is Ezekiel 21, verse 31. You will feel my anger when I turn it loose on you like a blazing fire, and I will hand you over to brutal men, experts in destruction. So what does God do? He pulls back. He lets go. Ezekiel 25.7, I will hand you over to other nations who will rob you and plunder you. Second Chronicles 36.17, The king killed the young men of Judah, even, the t- even in the temple. He had no mercy on anyone, young or old, man or woman, sick or healthy. God handed them, over, handed them all over to him. And then, more evidence. Romans, chapter 1, starting in verse 18. 
Paul speaking, the wrath of God is being revealed against all wickedness and godlessness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Verse, verse 18, notice, the wrath of God is being revealed. And then Paul goes on to tell us, the next uh, various verses, ten verses, that this happens because the truth about God was rejected. The truth about God was exchanged for a lie. They preferred images of mortal man to the truth about God. And therefore, God does something. And Paul gives a declaration, but then he also describes what happens. So we actually see the evidence of what happens. Verse 24, therefore, God gave them up. What's God do? God's action, let them go. And then here's the evidence of what happens. Gave them up in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. There's the problem again. They rejected the truth of God for a lie. And worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever to be praised. Because of this, God gave them up. The shameful lust. Even the women exchanged relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women for uh, a lust for one another. Men conducted indecent acts. Verse 28. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, there's the problem again, he gave them up to a depraved mind, to do what not all to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderous, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, rootless, heartless. I mean, you see the evidence of what happens when, when the source of life, when the source of goodness, the source of truth, the source of love, the source of purity, the source of holiness lets go of us who are filled with selfishness, fear, well, what happens to us? What will occur when, when that connection of goodness is let go? When you're in the ICU, sick, infected, septic with, with, uh, with some bacteria that's eating you away, and, and the IV that is infused in the antibiotics to, cu- to cure you is cut off. You are cut off for the antibiotic infusion. Well, what happens? The infection rages and destroys you. Okay? This is what God's wrath is. When people insist, get out of my life, leave me alone, I don't want you in my life. And we are cut off from the source of goodness, the source of love, the source of truth then nothing is left to stop wickedness in our own characters, in our own hearts, and we destroy ourselves. This is the wrath of God. In other words, he stops interceding. He stops interceding. And so what's intercession? See, what's the traditional view of intercession? Pleading one member of the Godhead, pleading the other member of the Godhead. But look at the evidence. As soon as mankind fell into sin, Genesis chapter 3, God comes down, speaking to the serpent, I will, I will put enmity between you and the woman. I will step in the middle between you and the woman. I'm going to intercede between you and the woman. I'm going to stand between the serpent, sin, sinfulness, wickedness, and God's people. I'm stepping in the way of the destructiveness of sin. I'm going to be the barrier. I'm going to be the shield. I'm going to hold in check the destruction of sin. And what do we see? Well, through the scripture, God is his angels holding back the four winds of strife. He's holding back the principalities and powers of darkness. We see in the book of Job, he's got his hedge of protection around the righteous. We see his chariots of fire protecting Elisha. But we also see the Holy Spirit interceding in hearts and minds to convict, to woo, to draw, to enlighten. God has been interceding with the destructiveness and power of evil forces ever since sin, sin was brought into this planet. And so his wrath is stepping back from that intercession. And when he does, there's nothing left to hold the wickedness in our hearts in check. And there's nothing left to hold the four winds of strife in check. And things will break loose in destruction. Yes? Could you say that the only reason he withdraws is because we request him to it? Absolutely. The only reason he withdraws is because we request, we insist. That's exactly right. Or we can say it this way, too. Not, we may not actually look to God and say, get out of my life. But if we persist in sin long enough, we so destroy the faculties that God gave us, the faculties of conscience. You know, the Bible says the conscience is seared as with a hot iron. The faculties of reason. The faculties that are sensitive to the movements of the Spirit of God. The faculties that recognize and are capable of responding to truth. If we persist in sin long enough, those faculties are so destroyed that no amount of truth, no amount of light, no amount of revelation will have any impact on us at all. We will still be God's enemies and reject Him. That's when He lets us go. And I believe that actually is the reason for the third coming and the resurrection of the wicked. Because those of us who have been with God in heaven for the thousand years, those of us who have had loved ones on earth, those of us who have had our human perspective and don't understand these things, we, we, might, we might remember that uh, before, let's say, we passed into the rest of the grave, that the loved one was going to church with us every week, but they're not in heaven. What's the deal on that? Well, we've seen the record books, but, but we believe they just could see the evidence of, of the New Jerusalem. If they could see the evidence of the holy angels, if they could see the evidence of God in person, well, if they had that evidence, it would surely come back to Christ, wouldn't they? And that's what this last resurrection is all about. They will see that evidence. The gates of the New Jerusalem will actually be open. 
The wicked will be out. And anyone's free to walk in. But you know what? Not one of them will. None of them. And why won't they? Not because God can't, won't let them, but because they are so settled into the lies about God. Their minds are so warped, their, their conscience so, so seared, their reasoning power so destroyed, that no truth, no evidence has any impact on them at all. And they believe the lies of Satan, that, that Jesus is the usurper of Satan's authority. Remember the lies that Satan tells? And they believe those lies, and they want to throw Jesus off his throne. And so this is what happens. And so God's wrath is letting go when there's no more possibility of someone being reached. Yes, let's look at some more evidence. The best evidence of all. Jesus, who came to be sin, though he knew no sin, took upon our, himself our sinfulness, our sick, twisted, terminal condition in order to heal and cure it. And on the cross, the Father treats him as if he is an unrepentant, unhealable sinner. Now, he's not, but the Father's action towards Christ is the same action the Father will take towards the wicked in the end. And what did the Father do to the Son? He let him have what he chose. And the Son chose, not the Father, the Son chose his path. No one can take my life. I will give it freely. And the Father did not intercede to stop that. The Father, and so Christ says, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you let me go? Why have you forsaken me? Why haven't you done something to stop it? Because, my son, you've chosen this path, and I am respecting your choice. The wicked in the end. Why doesn't God do anything? Why does he let them go? Because that is what they have chosen for their own life. And God does the same thing in both places. He steps back, and he lets them have their choice. Yes? It's kind of weird, though, because he didn't actually take, like, he didn't live a life of sin, and he didn't, like, he wasn't, he was filled with godly love when he died, so I, I mean, I understand that he took on sin, but how is it that he was killed, or not killed, but, I don't know, it's kind of confusing. Well, let's, let's clarify it. With God's love, but yet he was still... Yes, and that's why, that's why what was suggested a couple weeks ago, that Christ died the second death in one of the sermons, is incorrect. It's incorrect. What is the second death, factually? Let's look at the facts. Who, who gets resurrected from the second death? Nobody. Well, did Christ get resurrected? Yes. Well, then it wasn't the second death. I mean, think about it. Think about this if you look at the penal system, because a lot of people who like the second death analogy, they need it because they believe Christ is our penal substitute. And so if, if, the, if the punishment is eternal death, well, Christ had to die it, because if he didn't die it, then, then of course he didn't make the payment, did he? You see, we have to have that payment, so we have to say he died the second death. But think about this. Somebody on death row here in America uh, is, is, being, is going to be executed. And let's say, just per se, our legal system would allow an innocent person to come forward and say, I'll take that penalty upon me. And, and, and if we allowed that, we'd say, okay, you can go in and take that death penalty. And the person who's going into the death chamber for this person believes they're going to die. They're getting lethal injection, and they're strapped to the table, the IV's put in, and an anesthesiologist injects them with medicine that puts them to sleep for 36 hours, and then wakes them up 36 hours later. Now, they thought they were going to die, but they actually only went to sleep for 36 hours and woke up 36 hours later. Is that the same thing as death? Well, think it through. That's exactly what we're saying here. Christ went to sleep for 36 hours, but he thought he was going to die eternally. And so because he thought he was going to die, well, then it's really the same thing. Is it? It is not. It is fabrication. It's falsehood. It's a lie. It's twisting the truth. The truth is Christ did not die eternally. Well, then what was it all about? It was never about making a payment of a legal substitutionary nature. It was about healing, curing, fixing the condition. And so when we look at what Christ came to do, he came and took upon himself our condition. He became sin. He took sinfulness upon him. Now, the history of Christ... He is a unique being in all creation history. Adam was formed out of the dust of the ground. God breathed into his life, the breath of life. He became a perfect, sinless, living being. And Eve was taken from his side, both directly created from God. None of us in this room were, were created that way, were we? No. no. We came from a sinful mother and a sinful father, born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Now look at Christ. Was, was his humanity formed out of the dust of the ground? No. no. Was it taken from a perfect, sinless being side like Eve? No. Did he have sinful parents? No. no, he's a unique being. He's not like any of it. He took his humanity from, from Mary, uh, Galatians chapter 4, was born in sin, conceived in iniquity, so he took that real humanity, but his father was God himself. So in Christ we have the two antagonistic principles at war. God's perfect law of love, giving, the character of God, 
indwelling in Christ, in his heart and mind as he comes into the world with perfect unity with his Father. No severing. His heart and mind in perfect unity with Father. But he has a humanity like ours capable of tempting him. Biblical evidence. Uh, Hebrews 4.25. He was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. James chapter 1. How are we tempted? No one should say God tempts because God can't be tempted by evil. Notice, divinity cannot be tempted. So Christ was tempted in his humanity. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires. Hebrews 4 says he was tempted in every way like us. James 1 says we're tempted by our own desires. Well, if they're both true, doesn't that mean Christ had to be tempted by his own human passion? Yes. If they're both true... Well, let's look at the evidence. Did it happen? In Gethsemane, did Christ experience powerful emotions from his human nature to avoid the cross? Yes, yes he did. And that tempt- temptation is a temptation to save self. And the two root, e- two root elements is God's law of love, loving others so much that you'll do what's in their best interest. If it comes down to it, give your life that they might live. Greater love is no man than to give his life that another might live. That's godly love, giving all for another. Satan's principle of survival the fittest. Do whatever I have to to protect myself, including if it comes down to it, kill you that I might live. These are the root elements. Christ did battle in his own mind, in his own heart. Is he going to go with this temptation that was more powerful than any of us could ever experience to save himself? Or will he continually, Father, not my will, thy will be done, give himself. And on the cross, there he is being tempted again. You saved others. Come down off the cross. Save yourself. Save yourself. The same thing. But at every turn, Christ chooses to give himself in love. And this is the reason he had to die. If at anywhere along the way, he would have exercised his power to stop death's approach, he would have been acting in self-interest. And sin would have won. He only could act in love and give himself. And in so doing, he restored in this creation God's character of perfect love, rewrote the law of love in the species human, and rose in the third day a new creation. This is the plan of salvation, an actual regenerating, recreating, healing, restorative, rebuilding of of godly character in the human species that we could not do for ourselves. Christ did it for us, and now he stands as the source of of remedy for all humans. How? He says, the Holy Spirit will, it's good for you that I go. If I don't go, the comforter won't come. Now, when he comes, he's not going to speak on his own, you understand. He's going to take what is mine and make it known to you. And what is it that is Christ that we need? His character. And so he takes the character of Christ and rebuilds it in us, thus we beget the mind of Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Romans 5.5, 5, he pours his love out into our hearts. Hebrews 8.10, this is the new covenant I will make. I will write my laws in their hearts and minds. They will be my people. No longer will someone say, know the Lord. We will all know him. It's a regenerating, recreating, rebuilding up of our character like Christ as we receive it from Christ. He achieved it. And notice this, like an antibiotic. If you're sick with pneumonia and you accept an antibiotic, did you make the antibiotic? Did you create the antibiotic? Did you work for the antibiotic? No, it's not our work. We don't achieve it, but we receive it freely. And as we receive it freely, he recreates his character in us. This is what Christ did on the cross. Does that make sense to everybody? Yes, questions. And I really like questions about this because um, this needs to be clarified. Yeah. I've always thought that this was a beautiful explanation, but what I don't understand is how does it apply to people before the cross? Oh, the same thing. The same thing. People before the cross were saved by faith in what Christ would accomplish. Okay? They trusted God, and, he, and, and God is not limited, in my understanding, He's not limited by time. Okay? And so what Christ would accomplish would be applicable to all human race. Um, another way to look at it is, Adam... Uh, by the way, Christ came as a substitute for one person. Adam. Adam. He came to substitute Adam's. You see, Adam was created to reveal the truth about God. Christ came to achieve two things. One, to finish the work Adam failed to complete. And Adam was created to reveal the truth about God in the context of a war. And Christ came to finish that work. And he finished that work. But because of Adam's sin, he had a second aspect that he had to do. He had to fix all the damage that Adam's sin caused. And Christ came to do both, reveal the truth and fix all the damage of sin, restoring God the character within. Yes, Ty. Tim, I just want to throw on the table that... There's another way to process our understanding of the second death. There's another option uh, that does not view it in a penal light. And that is that the second death is, in fact, the psychological meltdown that Jesus experienced and that the wicked will experience. 
as the process of the inherently destructive nature of sin runs its full course. In uh, chapter 26 of Matthew, when Jesus was going into Gethsemane, he said, my soul, in the Greek, psyche, is exceedingly sorrowful to the point of death. Absolutely. And Luke's gospel informs us, and Ellen White augments that understanding by pointing out that an angel came to strengthen Jesus That's right. psychologically, emotionally, by giving remembrances and assurances of the Father's love for him, which caused Jesus to be strengthened to the point of being able to go from Gethsemane to the cross so that it was uh, a public demonstration of God's love. And the implication is that Jesus would have died in Gethsemane before he ever reached Calvary. He would have died of non-physical causes. That's right. And from right. that standpoint, I think that that it's, it would be permissible, perhaps even more accurate, not to say that Jesus died the second death, but to say that Jesus experienced, passed through, and conquered the second death. No, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure we should be saying Jesus did not come anywhere in proximity to the second death. Whatever it was that Jesus endured for the human race... It certainly was not merely the first death, because that's not the wages of sin. The second death somehow has to figure in to what happened to Jesus in Gethsemane and Calvary. I don't believe that that, that necessarily means that because the second death is eternal death, eternal extinction, and because Jesus wasn't eternally extinct, obviously, therefore he didn't die the second death or experience the second death, I don't think that that is a logical train of thought necessarily. I think we could say that Jesus, he, he conquered it, he well, faced it, he I, I experienced like it, but the love of the Father that he continued to move in sync with was the conquering factor that prevailed over the guilt and fear and psychological implications of the second death. Now, now see, I like what you're doing. If you hope you're, you're hearing this, how we're processing this out. He conquered the second death is different than suffered the second death or experienced or paid the penalty of the second death. Those are different things. I, I, I'm all with you because let's look at the differences now. Can Christ, okay, because I want to clarify the second death thing because there's several differences you haven't brought out yet. And I want to point those out, but go ahead. There, there are a couple other points. When Jesus spoke of the first and second death, he gave a description of what each entails. In uh, chapter 10 of Matthew, I think, verse 28 or something like that, he said, Fear not those who can kill the body, but are not able to kill the psyche, the, the essence of right. who you are right. as a human being. But rather fear him who can destroy, not kill, now the word destroy is used, both body and soul in hell. And again, you've already defined what it means when that explicit language is used regarding God doing uh, something in regards to the destruction of the wicked. But if you fast forward to chapter 20 of uh, Revelation, you have a very clear description of the second death. You have a very clear description of what happens to the wicked ultimately, finally. It says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the heavens and the earth sought to flee away, and there was found no place for them. And the books were open, and they were judged according to the things written in the book. I think that, that that's a description of fallen human beings not coming into the presence of God and God opening a ledger and reading words that are written with you know quill pens or zebra pens from Walmart or any kind of computer system. It's, it's saying that when you come into the immediate presence of God as a sinner... You experience immediate, full-blown, hyper-self-consciousness. You experience total self-awareness on a level that you never have because God, by His grace and the intercession process, has been shielding you Praise from God facing that. that reality. In contrast to God's goodness. In there you are in God's presence. And now you are face-to-face -face with the full-blown reality of God's unselfish love and righteousness Absolutely. in contrast to your utter self-centeredness and in that process, according to Ellen White's comments on that, every need of their lives is traced before their eyes like letters of fire, 
they are conscious of every deed of their life. Right, absolutely. So that's the psychological meltdown that I'm referring to that I think the second death involves. And so let's look at this difference between Christ and the wicked in the end. Christ died longing to see his father's face. You've already quoted, the wicked die running to hide from his father's face. Christ died trusting in the father. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. The wicked die distrusting the father. Ultimately, Christ dies as love vanquishes, and you said, overcomes, destroys, conquers selfishness and the second death. The wicked die as they are overcome by selfishness in their hearts. And that's precisely why there's no resurrection right. from and the that's, second death for the wicked, but there was a resurrection. The resurrection and that's precisely why, not by fiat. It wasn't a capricious, right. arbitrary act of God. He came forth from the grave because he died continuing in selfless love. And that's precisely why his death was not the same experience of the wicked in the end. Because they did not die with love overcoming selfishness. They die overcome by selfishness. So I like what you said, that I have no problem he came face to face with the second death. But he conquered it, not died it. It's a different experience. So I have no problem that uh, you said a proximity. Sure, he came into proximity with it, and he, and, he, and he destroyed the second death. Death, as it says, that death and Hades are thrown in the lake of fire. Christ destroyed the second death in his experience which is not the same thing as, as suffering under the second death. And the legal, penal, substitutionary system has to have Christ dying the second death to pay the penalty for us. Rather, this system understands that Christ came to cure, fix, and heal, and he faced it and conquered it by love overcoming selfishness. So I, I love this discussion. I think it was great. Did it clarify for some people in here? Yeah. Yes, it was very helpful. Thank you. Yeah. I'm still confused, though. What then, and I know you've answered this question before, but what then killed Christ. It's almost as if sin overcame a member of the Godhead, which just doesn't... Okay, first off, what part of Christ died? His divinity or his humanity? His humanity. So divinity did not die on the cross. Right. We're all in agreement with that, right? Yes. Okay. And so his human body that he took upon himself was similar to our human body. It was mortal, absolutely. And his human body, I think, actually died from a confluence of factors. There was a confluence of factors coming together. One, the psychological distress and weight and agony and pain uh, that was breaking his heart. But that can't be dissociated from also the physical weakening that had happened from being beaten, from blood loss, from dehydration, from crucifixion. All that weakens the ability to handle all this stuff at the same time. So there's a confluence of factors going on together that brought it to the point that he died. All right, let's go on. Anyway, because I want to give some more evidence. We're talking about the evidence here, and then from the founders, of, one of the founders of our church, and the question still is, will God have to inflict external penalties upon him? Will he have to make people suffer in the end? This is um, from First Selected Messages 235. We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act of transgression reacts upon the sinner, works in him a change of character, and makes it more easy for him to transgress again. By choosing to sin, men separate themselves from God, cut themselves off from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. Notice, this is talking of a natural law, that when you tie a plastic bag over your head, you cut yourself off from oxygen. You don't have to have someone inflict death upon you because you're cutting yourself off from the source of life, the oxygen your body needs. Sin cuts us off from the connection to God, who is the source of life. And then Desire of Ages 762. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan had declared that the law of God could not be obeyed, that justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urge Satan. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be the God of truth and justice. And I'm going to suggest to you, those who from the pulpit argue that God must punish sin are, are putting forth Satan's characterization of God. And that might sound strong, but one of the founders of our church will stand right beside me as I make that claim. But the cross is where justice and mercy kissed. Yes, but what happened there? Was God inflicting and punishing his son? No, and that's the whole point. God was not inflicting punishment. That's where, okay, your, your child is dying of leukemia. You want to save your child, you offer a bone marrow transplant. In order to not violate the laws of health, in order to be in harmony with the law, what must happen in order for your child with leukemia to survive? The cancer must remit. remit. 
Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Sinfulness, the, the infection of, of rebelliousness, lawlessness, godlessness in our hearts must remit. The law of love must be restored. We could not do this for ourselves any more than a child with leukemia can have their cancer remit on their own. The bone marrow transplant allows for the cancer to be remitted, the cancerous cells to remit back. Um, Christ coming and taking our sinful condition, being that unique being with the godly character restored within, remitted the species back into holiness with God without the shedding of blood. It could only happen through his self-sacrifice all the way to the point of death, restoring love into the character. So, yes, I mean, this is incredible stuff, but it's all in harmony with the law, the law of love. The remittance is his justice. Yes, absolutely. It's absolutely his justice. In Monday's lesson, it talks about punishment, and it talks about the... Um, well, in fact, the top of Monday's lesson, that first paragraph, it says, Into a dark world with misunderstanding about the person and character of God, Jesus came to set things straight by his life and by his word. Coming from the very essence of God, he brought a revelation of God that could not be improved upon. That is absolutely true. Absolutely true. Cannot be improved upon. The revelation of God. Then what, what has been misrepresented? This whole idea of punishment. Let me ask you this question. Because it talks about, in the last paragraph of Monday's lesson, it talks about, as Jesus sat there watching uh, the slaughter of the innocents, of thinking about Herod's account of him and so forth, and the blood edict from Pharaoh and the Jews, Jewish males, Jesus came uh, to model a God who was complete antithesis of these murderous psychopaths. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But who does much of Christianity teach is the greatest murdering psychopath of all? God himself. Yeah, I mean, think about it. Hitler gassed the Jews before he burned them. Christianity teaches God will burn them for all eternity, alive, conscious, to make them suffer. Or some say that God performs a miracle and burns them as long as they deserve in their conscious state to make them suffer. In other words, we're saying Hitler was more merciful than God. Are you comfortable with that? Not at all. Because it's a lie. Hitler is not more merciful than God. God does not inflict these things upon his children. Anyway, I just wanted to point that, that out. I want you to imagine that a, a physician father tells his child never to play with scalpels. And he even says, in the day you play with the scalpels in my office, you, you will surely die. And the child plays with the scalpels, cuts himself, cuts an artery, and is bleeding to death. This is analogous to cutting the circle of love. We're severed from the circle of love, the circle of life. If something isn't done, the child will die. The father realizes what's happened. He's not angry. He's forgiving. He's loving. He comes to his child, but the child has not only cut himself, he now believes the father is out to get him. And as he sees the father coming with a, 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 a Novocaine injection or a Xylocaine injection to, to numb him and, and sutures to heal him, he thinks he's coming with a lethal injection to kill him because he believes a lie about the father. And so he runs, and he won't let the father near him. You see, this is the Christianity that's taught. God must kill. God is coming to kill all the unrepentant. And so uh, what do we do? We run. And we create things to be protected from God. We throw ideas up that we have to have priests or people or saints or Jesus or Mary or somebody between us and God because we sure don't want him getting close because he'll kill us if he gets close. And it closes the heart in fear. And so we don't open the heart to experience the regeneration that God wants to restore within us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are exactly as Jesus revealed you to be. Jesus didn't punish anyone. He forgave everyone. He was kind. He was gracious. He healed. Even those who put him on the cross, he forgave and he loved. And we know that you are exactly like that, God. But we also know that sin is destructive, that sin unhealed is terminal, that if we don't open our hearts and allow your spirit to pour out Christ-likeness, to regenerate us and love, to be like you, that our condition is terminal. Lord, we put our lives in your hands. We ask that you will heal our minds, remove the lies, the distortions, bring us to greater confidence, faith, and trust in you, that we may go forward revealing the truth about who you are, that this world may be lightened, and we can see you in our lifetime. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.